Well, we've been in the book of 1 Timothy now for it seems like six months or so. I didn't add it up, but it's probably not far off. This is the last sermon on 1 Timothy. If all goes well, uh, we should finish up this book. And next week I plan to begin 2 Corinthians. By now you know after listening to all of the sermons on Timothy that Paul was very concerned about the health of the church in Ephesus. That's the reason for the letter. He was encouraging Timothy that the household of God should know how to behave. This church family made up of pastors and deacons and elders and men and women, young and old, they needed to know how to serve each other well as a family, a church, a household of God. But the thrust of the letter certainly is that Timothy would insist on sound doctrine and godly living, both as pastors and really as a congregation. That sound doctrine and godly living would be paramount in the lives of his people. False teachers, you see, had perverted the gospel, both the orthodoxy, what they believed, and their orthopraxy, what they practiced, how they lived. So Paul tells Timothy to correct these things and to not give up. It's not going to be easy, but not to give up. But today's passage is not difficult to understand. We're going to read it, and you're all going to understand it almost intuitively. Rich people in the church should be generous, have their minds set on heaven and not on earthly things, which are ultimately going to be burned up in the end. But the message certainly is specifically for the rich. So all you rich people need to pay attention today. Please stand and listen to 1 Timothy 6, 17-21. This is God's holy inspired word, inerrant and unchangeable. Listen to this word for you this morning. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray and ask the Lord to be with us during the hearing of God's Word. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we come to you once again as needy people, as your sheep who are often wandering, whose ears are stopped and hearts are hard. We pray that you would enable us to understand this Word, indeed that you would apply it to our hearts, that we might be changed, and all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of the sermon is Fix Your Eyes on Jesus. I'm going to use some alliteration to give you the four points of the sermon, all beginning with the word H. Be humble, number one, humble. Hope in God, number two. Hold loosely to the word, number three, to the world, sorry, number three. And hold tightly to your deposit, number four. Be humble, hope in God, hold loosely to the world, and hold tightly to your God. This last part that we read, verses 17 through 21, may not seem like it fits. 
you remember last time we preached through this particular passage, Paul ended with the word amen. It seemed like he had finished his thought talking about Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. It seems like that would be the natural place to end the letter, but he continues on. So what is he doing here? Is it Paul's one of Paul's kind of rabbit trails, which he does. If you've read Paul's letters, you know sometimes he'll divert from the main point to go down a little trail that's helpful and then come back. Or is there something more going on? Well, it might be either either one, but I believe that this is part of a chiastic structure. We'll talk more about it later. I mention this because it's not a random event. What we've just read isn't like a P.S. I don't believe that. I believe he's telling us something that he's already told us, and he's doing a mirror, a chiasm in Hebrew literature is like a mirror. He says something in the beginning, and he says something in the very end. This is A and A A minor, if you will, and they mirror each other, these messages. And then he'll say something in the beginning, B, and then he'll mirror that, B minor, and then C and C minor, and D is the point of the whole thing, and that's at the very top of the chiasm. And that's really what's going on, I believe, in this last chapter. Verses 3 through 8 of chapter 6, what does he talk about? False teachers. People who are swerving from the faith. What does he talk about in verse 21, which we just read? Those who have swerved from the faith. There's your A and your A minor. How about verses 9 through 14 in chapter 6? This is all about the love of money. Fighting the good fight. The B minor is 17 through 20. The rich in this age, don't be prideful. Store up treasure in heaven. Guard the faith. Then you have C, which is 15A. Christ is the only blessed and only power. Mirrored with verse 16. He lives in unapproachable light, honor, eternal strength. And then the, the whole focus of the whole last chapter is B. I'm sorry, verse 15B. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So this isn't a random thing that Paul's doing. He's specifically re-emphasizing a previous point. I think that's important. It's not a P.S. Because when you think P.S., often in our minds we go, oh, well, this is kind of an afterthought. Well, of course, Scripture doesn't do afterthoughts. Scripture only does the inerrant and inspired word. But still, it's good to remember that Paul's a master writer and he's chiastically re-emphasizing points that have already been made. Okay, enough on literary structure. The first point is that the rich in this present age should not be haughty. They should be humble. They shouldn't be proud. They should be humble. So we must ask, who are the rich in this present age? I think that's a fair question. Who are the rich? Well, this is probably a review for most of you, but it might be new information for some This is based on 2019 uh, data. There's 7.5 billion people on our planet. So if you take all of the demographics of our whole planet and you shrink that down to just 100 people, the same same ratios, but it's just 100 people now instead of 7.5 billion. The following statistics apply. 50 of the people on earth are men and 50 are women. I think that's a testimony to God. This is how he created us, male and female. 
So in this 100-person planet, half are women, half are men. This is where it gets interesting, though. 60 are from Asia. Of all the 100, 60 are from Asia today. 16 live in Africa. 10 live in Europe. 9 live in South or Central America. And in North America, 5. 5 people live here. 95 people live everywhere else in the world. 95% of the people live elsewhere. 5% live in North America. In the whole world, 7 out of 100 have a university degree. 7. Some of you are already thinking about lunch. 15 people in this world always have enough to eat. If there are 100 people in the world, 15 have enough to eat. 15 are also overweight. These are in the wealthiest countries of the world. 69 per people are somehow malnourished in some way. Let's look at wealth. North Americans, you know those five people who live in North America out of the hundred? North Americans own 30% of the world's wealth. So practically, if your annual income is $40,000, you're in the top 3% of the world, the richest people in the world. This is from a statistic from the Miniature Earth Project. I couldn't verify it, but it sounds good. If you keep your clothes in a closet, your food in a refrigerator, and sleep on a bed and live in a house, you live better than 75% of the world. It's probably not far off. In our world with only 100 people, the first 45 people in the world own 99% of the wealth. The first 45 people. That includes us. So the next 55 people, everyone else in the world, shares the last 1% of wealth. So you get the point. We have first world problems. Most people in the world have third world problems. I need some food. I'm starving. I'm sick. There's no doctors. Why are there worms in my gut? I need shoes. I can't get rid of these lice. I have no money. That's the vast majority of our world's population. In America, we have different problems, don't we? My iPhone 31 won't download the pictures. What is wrong with this world? I have to find a new vet for my dog. These new shoes are the wrong color. I've got to send them back now. My front porch is being invaded by grasshoppers. That's real. I need new insurance. I can't get this particular procedure covered. I can never find anything in this grocery store. It's so big. That's real as well. So these words of Paul to the rich in this age, my point is they're for us. They're for all of us. Not just hypothetically, but really. Based on a worldwide standard, everyone in this room is incredibly rich. Based on a first century standard, everyone in this room is incredibly wealthy. We live in the wealthiest country the world's ever known, with more freedom than any other people in history, more opportunity for advancement than any place on the globe. Things aren't perfect, this is true. 
But there's no question that our quality of life, this is the greatest place and the greatest time to ever be alive as a human in our 6,000-year history of creation. Everyone wants to get to America. Have you noticed that? Nobody wants to leave. And it seems like everyone wants to come to East Tennessee as well. So for me, this is the bottom line. Compared to the rest of the world, we are all incredibly rich and blessed beyond belief. And we need to be grateful for all that God has done to provide for us. He puts you here. You're blessed with abundance beyond measure. You're blessed with the time of your birth to be born in the most wonderful country in the world. So give thanks to God for all of his bounty. That's our starting point as we begin to look at the rest of this message. So now as we read, as for the rich in this present age, now we can all own it. Okay, thank you, Lord. So what is Paul's message to us? First of all, don't be haughty. Don't be prideful. Be humble. And Paul tells Timothy to command this, to charge this, charge them, command them not to be prideful, not to be haughty. And this is human nature, isn't it? It's to look at others through the lens of our possessions. We don't mean to as Christians, but it's just we're wired to do that. If we're not careful, we can fall into that rather than looking at people through the lens of the gospel. Thankfully, I think most people in our culture know that being overtly prideful is just not really acceptable in America. I mean, certainly we see prideful people. I'm not saying they don't exist. But as decrepit as our culture seems to be at times, they're still, even for the most rich and powerful people, they want to seem like the common man, don't they? But it's not just an external thing. It's an attitude of the heart. And this is what I want to address right now. When he tells us not to be haughty or prideful, what does that mean for us? So these are some of the ways that I thought might be helpful to talk about. When you see someone on the street begging, asking for money, asking for whatever, or you hear of someone who's just on skid row and really asking everyone for help, or when you get phone calls from people who just want money, Do you look at them and immediately begin judging them? Well, he's just panhandling. I bet he makes 50 bucks an hour doing that. He's going to spend it all on meth or alcohol. Look at him. He looks looks drunk already. He needs to get a real job. He needs to work. So these things may or may not be true. But the attitude of your heart is haughty and proud, isn't it? Why are you not the one begging on the side of the street? Why is it that you? Oh, well, you see, I work really hard. I'm not lazy like him. True, but did you choose the place of your birth? Did you choose your parents? Did you choose your intelligence? Did you choose your race? Did you choose your health? Who decided all of that? Not you. It was the Lord. So when you see that all that makes up who you are and the abundance that you live in and the great security that you have compared to the person begging on the street, when you see that all this is from God, it helps you have compassion on people who are in dire circumstances. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians that the love of Christ should control us. And that's when we see people like this as well. The love of Christ. We're not to live for ourselves, but to live for him. There's an ancient kind of code among the the wealthy of Europe. It's called uh, noblesse oblige, which basically means that if you've been given great privilege, in other words, you're born into some great powerful family in England or in Europe, they were taught that this also brought great responsibility to society. You weren't given this, this honor and this privilege just to spend it on yourself. People of high birth or rank or wealth had a responsibility to help people in a lesser position. And I say we as Christians should apply that to ourselves, both Americans as people who are incredibly wealthy, but also as spiritually mature people, people who know Christ. We who live in America and have faith in Christ, we are the richest people ever. We have been blessed more than anyone I can think of. So Paul's message is to be humble and kind in these circumstances, especially those who are in lesser condition than us or without the gospel. We need to follow the example of our Lord. It's described in Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he were in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. He is our example as we look at everyone else in the world. We should have great compassion upon them. And even our enemies, we pray for, we strive to love, at least in our hearts. Christ had everything. And he didn't grasp at his heavenly glory when he came to earth. We have much. And we should not be grasping at it, but should be compassionate with others, humble and kind like our King and our Lord. So be humble. That's the first point. Point two, hope in God. Hope in God. Verse 17 continues that the rich in this age are not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's just a reminder for us, I'm sure. You know the word. God is our only refuge. He's our only strength. He's our only place of security and peace. We must ultimately only place trust in Jesus Christ. And surely riches are an uncertain commodity. Riches are here today and gone tomorrow. And this is literally true. But there's also real danger in setting your mind on riches. We all face this threat. We're all tempted to obsess about money at times in life. But those of us with worldly wealth are often tempted to trust in our wealth as opposed to trusting in Christ. Sometimes when people experience financial hardship, it's not the devil. 
It's God who's stripping you of an idol that's going to destroy you. Remember the parable of the sower? The, the seed is the gospel and it, it fell among uh, thorny soil. And what did our Lord say about that in Mark 4? But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things choked the word and it became unfruitful. You remember the rich young ruler, Luke 18? He's very religious, goes to church every Sunday, probably twice. Jesus told him, one thing you lack, sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. When he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There's a great warning here for those of us who know God, know the, the truth of the gospel. God will not permit idolatry. And that's what he's doing with the rich young man. He saw that this was an idol in his life and he reached out to take it. He said, you've got to sell all this stuff. It's controlling you. And he wouldn't do it. There are some people in every church who have decided, you know, God is good. I like God. But we need to be practical here. Like, let's not get crazy. I'm not going to... No. Money is important. We need money. These are the ways that we trick ourselves into holding on to the idol of wealth. The reality is you can only have one master. Jesus said in Luke 16, no one can serve two masters, either... Either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Yes, we all need it. We all use it, but it cannot control you. We'll talk more about that in a moment. We need to trust our good master. He provides everything that we need. So when you're tempted to obsess about your wealth or the trappings of this world, set your hearts on things above and not on earthly things. Not on earthly treasures. It's all vanity. We read that in Ecclesiastes 5. It's all going to be burned up. And God cares for you. He is the one watching over you. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your treasure? Beloved, where is your treasure today? What do you trust in? One way I think helpful to pinpoint what you seek after, what you worship, what you treasure, is what causes your stress and your anxiety. These are the places where you're tempted to idolatry. What should you be anxious about? That God's name is blasphemed every day? Yes. That should cause you anxiety. That His law is ignored? His character is maligned? Yes. That the Lord's day is desecrated, even by Christians, every week? Yes. These things should cause you anxiety. 
But are any of us anxious about the things of God? Or is it rather success at work or loss of income or good grades or the future? Loss of property, chronic health issues or death? Politics, family relationships. When it comes to these things, we're told not to be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and petition to present our request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding. He knows everything. Will guard your hearts and minds. So brother, sister, don't be anxious. Don't grasp a hold of money. But set your hearts on eternal things. Everything else will be burned up. You are made to pursue only one thing. And it's Jesus. And he will last forever. So don't worry about your life. Jesus said this. Don't worry about your life. What you're going to eat or drink. About your body, what you're going to wear. Don't worry about it. Work hard and trust God. That's how we live. Well, how do you do this, Pastor? Hebrews 13.5 Keep your love, your life free from a love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You see where the writer of Hebrews goes? He goes to God. Fix your eyes on God because he's not going to leave you. Placing your hope in Christ alone is the only way you will ever have peace. True security is only found in him, not in your life insurance plan, not in your health insurance, in Christ. In Philippians 4.19, Paul says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. He really is a good shepherd. He really does care for you well. So be humble, point one. Point two, hope in God alone, not in your riches. But point three, hold loosely to your possessions. You see, if you understand that God is your provider, it frees your heart up to be as generous as you want to be. Hold loosely to your possessions. This is verse 18. The rich in this age, they're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share. That's us. So why does God provide more wealth to some people than others? Well, we don't know. But they're to be generous, ready to share, to do good. And again, we're all in this room in the category of the rich, the top three percenters. That's us. The author of the hymn Amazing Grace, his name was John Newton. He used to be a slave trader, and then God saved him. He became a pastor. And after pastoring for many years, someone came to him as he preached through a text that would imply that people should give to the poor. They came to him and said, Pastor, should we give to the poor even if doing so could create risk for my own family or my own estate? Should we still do that? Because it doesn't sound wise. And he responded very, I think in an apropos way. He said, if someone came to you today and asked for a loan, and you were 100% sure, no doubt, that it would be paid back in one month, and you could survive without that money for a month, and it was a certain done deal, you knew it was guaranteed for repayment, would you loan the money requested? The man said, yes, of course, there's no risk. I would certainly do that. Pastor Newton said, well, then you've answered your own question. Because our Lord has promised to supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. 
Our Lord said as much in Luke 12. He said, fear not, little flock. And this is when he's telling his disciples to be generous and kind and not be afraid of the world. He says, fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. You see, when we understand who our God is, it frees our hearts up to be as generous as we want to be. And the return is 100% guaranteed. There's nothing for us to fear. You should never be prevented from doing good by your fears. No. Yes, be wise. Of course, be wise. Be a good steward. I hear all the arguments all the time. Even in my own heart. Yes, we want to do those things. But... Are these excuses for us just to hold on tightly to what we've got? Or should we have our arms open wide? Rather than being a lockbox for the wealth God's given us, shouldn't we rather be a funnel? And one of those funnels that kind of squirts out concrete where you just kind of spray it all over, wherever the need is, wherever you need a little bit more, you just spray it there. That's the way we should live. An old theologian said the kingdom of God is like an upside-down kingdom. Like all the things the world values, we don't value. And everything we do looks foolish to the world. Because our heart is somewhere else. We hold loosely to all that God has given us. This is the way to freedom. And you can do this if you have your heart set on God. This is the way to live, brother and sister. If you are holding tightly to things... You're creating anxiety for yourself that's not necessary. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Open your arms up. Hold loosely to everything you own. Your family. Your relationships. Your home. Certainly your money. It's good and pleasing to the Lord to do so. You should be generous and ready to share. And this really is a mark, one mark of a Christian. We hold on to our worldly wealth so loosely that the best cared people for in the whole world are people in a church that believes this. You remember at the end of the age, Jesus told a a story. It wasn't really a parable. He's just telling us what's going to happen. Matthew 25, he says, The king will say to those on his right, those who are saved, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it, To one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And he's talking specifically about the body of Christ, the church. God never calls unsaved people his brothers. The Father never calls unsaved people his children. He's talking about the church. How we care for each other is that. God delights that we imitate His Son by meeting the needs that we see every day to the best of our ability, especially these, my brothers. God delights in that. 
it's on most people's minds if you are connected to the outside world at all. What is going on in our country? Like, what is going on? Seems like our rights, our liberties, our freedoms are all shrinking. It seems like our government is becoming increasingly oppressive, despotic. It seems like there's a looming financial crisis and it's just like a cloud hovering over us, waiting to rain down upon us, caused by self-serving and greedy politicians. What are we to do in this environment? Are you ready for this? And my answer is always the same. Number one, God is sovereign. He knows everything. This is all working according to His plan. Perfectly. Not partly, perfectly. Well, it looks like it's getting so dark. Well, maybe it is. But out of darkness, there always comes light in God's system, in God's paradigm. Nobody wants darkness. You'd be silly to hope for darkness, to hope for difficulties. But if it comes, there is light coming. So praise God for a sovereign God. But secondly, if there really is a crisis, look around. This is a loving family. We have lots of skills. We have lots of love. We're going to take care of each other. We have something that no one else in the world has. The person to your left and to your right is going to give you food if you need food. Is going to give you health care if you are trained in medicine. We're going to take care of each other. This is what the church does. Nobody in our church will ever starve or lack a place to live by God's grace. So no matter what the situation, we can always be good and generous with our wealth and we will take care of each other. So the challenge is if you are not usually generous, if you find that in your heart you really are holding tightly to things, I'm challenging you now. Let go. Just let go. Focus your heart on Christ and not on your riches, not on your wealth, not on your possessions. Especially considering all that you now know and all you've been given and all the great blessings and abundance you enjoy. You have every reason to hope in Christ that he will take care of you. And if you do this, you have great reason to hope in eternal life. And if you don't, you really don't have reason to hope in eternal life. Well, that sounds really harsh, Richard. I can't believe you just said that. We're saved by grace. Don't you know that? Well, certainly, but look at Paul's argument. Verse 19. If you do these things, rich people, you're storing up treasure for yourselves as a good foundation for the future so that you may take hold of that which is truly life. He's saying that those who really are saved, they produce good fruit. Their lives are different. We're saved by faith alone, but it's a faith that's not alone. It always evidences itself in a changed life. We have a love for God. We have a love for His Word. We have a love for God's people. We have a love for this fellowship, for coming to to worship together. We have compassion with each other. We have the fruit of the Spirit. So on that glorious day, the Lord will say to us, Enter into your rest. For I was naked and you clothed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was in prison and you visited me. And like the people Jesus mentions in this story, we probably won't know what he's talking about. You remember they were like, Lord, when did we see you? The people of God 
love their Savior and their Father in heaven so much. And the Holy Spirit has recreated how they live. They've been regenerated. They've been given new life. That when they act in this manner, they don't even realize they're doing it. It's just who they are. And many of you are already like that. Christians don't even really need to be told to care for each other, to love each other, to be generous with each other. They just do it. So that's the first three points. Humble, be humble, hope in God alone. Hold loosely to your possessions. And finally, hold tightly to your deposit. Timothy in verse 20 is told to guard the deposit entrusted to you. And this mirrors chiastically what Paul had earlier told Timothy, although you go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. To guard that deposit, it's the gospel, the sound doctrine that he's been given. The message that he's been entrusted, the people whom he's been given to shepherd, he must guard it all closely. And then Paul goes on to say, avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Again, this is chiastically what Paul mentioned in the very beginning of the letter. Certain persons, verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding what they're saying or the things that they've made confident assertions of. So these vain discussions or pointless arguments, they're a temptation for the church in Ephesus. They could be a temptation for our church as well. Or when you're interacting with people from other churches in our, in our culture, in our community, we want to keep our eyes on the prize, on the main thing, which is the gospel. That's the deposit. What are modern day examples? Let me just give you a few that came to mind. The Seventh-day Adventist church is big here. I love Seventh-day Adventists. I love all people. They are in error about many things. So when they come and talk to me, and people have done this, don't you know you're supposed to worship on Saturday? It's a pointless discussion. Why would I enter that discussion at all? Or they tell me that I need to stop eating meat or whatever. Or that their church is the only church that's not apostate. All other churches are in error. It's a vain discussion. It's a false teaching. It's best left alone. Why would I talk about that? I always try to point it back to Christ. And the two or three times that I've done this, of course, the discussion ends. These particular people, anyway, did not want to talk about Christ and the gospel. Yet they're very confident, like Paul says, but they don't understand what they're saying. Or end times mania. People that just always want to talk about the end times. Oh, look at the newspaper. The end is coming. Look, this is the the mark of the beast. Look, this is the Antichrist and all this stuff. It's a distraction. It has nothing to do with the gospel that we are to live every day. The end is coming. We're not afraid of it. And it's nothing that I need to obsess over. So what do we do? We show them great compassion. We show them love. We show them Jesus. We share the gospel. We talk about the hope we have in Christ. That He came, He died for sinners like me and you. And apart from God's grace in my life, I would be nothing. I would be hell bound. And yet God who is rich in mercy, while I was still dead in sins, He saved me. And it's by grace alone that I've been saved. 
So my salvation is a wonderful gift, and it makes me humble and generous and gracious. This is the message we want to live. It's the message we want to preach. God's Spirit, if you understand these things, it's a gift of the Spirit. He's revealed it to you. You're not that smart. It's only by His Spirit that you understand anything spiritually that's true. So give God all the glory. So be humble. Hold on loosely to everything God's given you. Uh, hold on tightly and guard the deposit He's given you. And finally, the conclusion is just the last line of the chapter. Grace be with you all. That you is a plural you in the Greek. It's you all. So this is for the whole church. The whole message is for the church. And grace be with you is the best salutation you could ever receive. It's a mirror of the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom means peace, but it's more than just I'm not in conflict kind of peace. It's a whole life of peace and hope and grace and blessing. This is not found in money. It's not found in any worldly security. It's not found in family relationships. True shalom is only found in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's by grace through faith. We who know God's shalom can offer no better greeting than grace be with you. So be humble, hope in God, hold loosely to the world, be generous and hold tightly to the gospel. And this will be the only security you will ever find on this earth. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have given so much to your people. We pray that you would help us to understand the great blessing that we enjoy. We are overwhelmed when we think of so many people who would love to be where we are in this world. And yet you have put us here. We pray that we would always give you thanks. We would always give you worship. We would always give you great honor. We would always show great gratitude for all the gifts that you've given us. And that you would give us great compassion for the poor, for the lost, for the needy in our community and all over the world. Make us faithful to pray. Make us diligent to give. And keep our hearts always set on things above and not on earthly things. For Jesus Christ, your name's sake, we pray. Amen.